Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Gary, Joe, it's a pleasure to have you both on the show. Um, how's everybody doing? I got to start it off like that or it just sounds rude. How's everybody doing? <laughs> Our weather's turned nice, so I'm doing fine. <laughs> Very well. Very well. Thank you. Now, I had um, been looking through the case, and I know everyone's got, we've probably got some questions. We're going to let this kind of flow all over the place. But I mentioned to you, Gary Schoner, off air about Richard Edelman. I don't know if you can, if you remember a whole lot about him, but you you had some messages back and forth with Weisberg, and you guys have interesting perspectives, both of you, which I can ask you about, which is Joe Green working with John Judge and other generational researchers, and then you also working with Weisberg um, and many others that are prominent names that pop up in the assassination, and then me kind of coming in and learning from you guys, and I'm you know we all have different experiences and all different flows of research, but. From your experiences, and we could start with you, Gary, you know, working with Weisberg, working with um, Garrison, uh, or just having contact with even Vincent Salandria. I mean, did you find your own flow when you were doing your own research? I feel like everyone has to go off into their own thing, but through their experiences and their directions that you were able to look at, were you able to find where you kind of liked honing in on and where you felt like you gravitate? And I'm sure it changes throughout, like researching it even today. Well, yeah, I think you characterized it correctly. Yeah, different things intrigue you, frankly, or you think different things are important. But remember, at times also, when you're collaborating with other people, sometimes I'm going down pathways they're interested in, partly because I'm a friend and <laughs> I want to help. So there are tons of things I discussed with Harold, which were not things I was particularly involved with or interested in, like Edelman, I don't even remember. I'll be honest. I, it, and this is this is not the first time that somebody has pulled something up out of a, a, a Weisberg archive has opened up, reopened this whole thing. <laughs> Harold saved everything. And Harold and I were writing constantly. This is pre-internet, remember. So we're talking, we're talking mailed uh letters and phone calls and stuff, but we he kept it everything. I didn't. And uh, we went in all kinds of directions. There were times where Harold or Vince thought that I had particular knowledge or expertise or interest or something. So they'd ask me about something and get me interested simply because they thought I might have some particular insight, maybe because of something else I'd done. Uh, it, was, it was a little, uh, that's how I got introduced to Tink Thompson. Uh, Vince, Vince knew that I believe there had been a double head hit just based on the scant records we have of the anatomy of the brain. Of course, I'd just taken a year of clinical neurology, so I was very much into brain structure and stuff. And uh, he knew that Tink was doing it from the, the Z film, and he hooked us up because we're the only two people he knew that were talking about that. That's an example of something. Was I big deal? Was I into that area? Yeah, I was doing a memo for Tink originally for his book. And then when Cyril joined the fray, everything changed. Here you have a world-level forensic pathologist as opposed to a graduate student in psychiatry research. But yeah, that, that that's how you get down different pathways. And also the reason I don't remember some things very well. People will show me memos I generated interviews I conducted, I actually didn't remember until I saw the memo. I thought, holy shit, yeah, I did go down to Maryland and talk to her. So anyway, uh, the fallibility of memory, but also a focus. What you're asking about is focus. And uh, there were some things that captured 
my interest and imagination. Some things didn't. Were you surprised about like, I mean, that internet archive, like I said, I don't, I, I'm disconnected from this generation of researchers and these people that were there and experienced it and put all the man work into this. But I'm looking at the internet archive and looking at Harold's Weisberg's collection and it, it just seems like it's bottomless. It just, it keeps going every time I keep thinking I've went through the whole entire thing. I mean, I could, I've spent probably almost eight months now, nine months now going through the whole thing. And I keep finding more and more stuff where I'm like, well, I can't do that yet because I got to go into this. I mean, Harold he- was different because Harold did it full time. He wasn't working. It was a full time okay. endeavor. Uh, he wasn't in graduate school. He wasn't, any of the things that kept the rest of us busy. The only other person who was putting in that kind of time. Other, I mean, there are people, periods of time, Shirley Martin or, you know, there were certain part of what they called the Housewives Underground, that, but certainly I'm sure did that. And Sylvia Marr, certainly, at least in terms of examining the printed record, was day and night stuff. But Dave Lifton was probably the only other person, and he got his parents to subsidize him. So he basically wasn't working. He was working on the case. And of course, uh, the court between the two of them, of course, you can go totally bonkers. Uh, but Harold was doing this full time year after year. Remember, he had formerly been a Senate researcher, investigator. So this was up his alley and he just did it. And the second thing he did was, and I believe it was because he wasn't able to have kids. I think he wanted to be a dad. And so he adopted a lot of us younger uh, people uh, after me, Harold Rothman, a great many people that Harold worked with intensively. We did things for him at the archives. We got tremendous stimulation, ideas, questions. And he you're right, he was going in all kinds of directions almost at the same time. So it, 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 you couldn't keep up. Did any of the newspapers like who was were they receptive to it? I know we talked about like the press and then not really picking up the main story, kind of pitching a narrative. But I see a lot of articles and a lot of new stuff when it comes to Penn Jones writing or anything that was at least looked at and at least published in a sense. I mean, I'm looking into Jim Cothey right now, just trying to figure out, you know, what can I with his autopsy and all that type of stuff, just trying to find anything that I can find a sliver of like, is this proof like neck chop 100% like come on let's figure out why that's the weirdest thing i've ever seen but i mean is there any but i news- don't know if i sent you my piece on the a, a legacy of fear that, that that's that piece i did that was never published in the saturday evening post but i had done when Corey servas the editor and publisher called me late one night and i thought my god this lady of some prominence and power once to do a thing on the death. So I, I whipped off the thing. And yeah, you know, my view of the deaths or and my view of Penn, who I dearly love, but he was a real rascal. Penn, um, Penn did not differentiate. It's sort of like if you were anyway connected with a case and you died, he got it listed, including some that are ridiculous. I'll be real frank. I, Lee Bauer is a good example. I mean, I have no reason to believe it's anything other than a heart attack or stroke leading to a car. It was, you know... And Lee Bowers, what Lee Bowers knew was already public. Lee Bowers constituted no risk to anybody by that point. We all knew the story. We know all the details. We knew the only thing you're going to get from Lee Bowers, he's a switch tower operator some distance away, but did make some incredibly interesting observations. We had that. There's no lasting 
you know, threat to anybody. So it it doesn't make sense anyway. Uh, but Penn uh, tended to make some of the claims and uh, attracted some attention. Given you're talking Midlothian Mirror is a pretty small <laughs> publication, and I don't think, for example, when uh, Vince and I and Tom Caton did that piece, "The Watchman Waketh But in Vain," which ran for I don't know four weeks or something. We never got any attention to that. There was no, it, it's it's not like giving it to Penn and having Penn put it in the front page meant anybody read it or watched it. What about what about a name like Warren Reynolds? He wasn't killed, but he was, there was a rifle shot where, that hit him in the head. I feel Warren Reynolds is a very key case and there's no question because his family was threatened. Uh, and uh, that that case is one of the ones I put down in my legacy of fear as one that I think is probably connected. The biggest problem is we don't know exactly how, but we know that the Tippett slang was very key, absolutely key. I, I believe it was designed to lead to Oswald's death, shooting a police officer and then getting in a fight with armed in a darkened theater is, is a recipe for death in Dallas. It's probably even death in Minneapolis. So. Uh, and I think Harold said it well. He said, if the Tippett slang hadn't happened, it would have had to be invented. Remember, that's what Oswald was arrested in connection with. That's all he was asked about, as far as we know, until at least the middle of that evening, from what he yelled back to reporters. So, uh, But why? What was that? What was all that about? I don't think I've heard a theory uh, that strikes me as a good explanation. But I, I'm absolutely convinced that that uh, Warren Reynolds and and the, the, who it was that shot Tippett and the whole story of the Tippett slang, I think it's a big deal. Do you think if it was or if it was orchestrated from above that you have the Tippett murder gets all the Dallas police on board because a lot, Dallas wasn't receptive to Kennedy? So if you have this guy being charged over killing a cop, I think they're going to be more likely to go find this person and they can just tack on the killing of the Kennedy on top of that. Well, the other reality is beyond the light. I think it was important that Oswald be killed. I'm kind of amazed that he lived as long as he did. Being out of that theater, that was that should have never happened. I thought he was supposed to die at the theater. It seems like it. I'm I'm certain of it. I, I I'm flabbergasted. I do believe the story of the theater. I I believe Oswald went. I believe Oswald called in somewhere, and was told what to do. Uh, I don't think that going to the Texas theater makes any sense unless he was directed to do something like that. The second thing is, I believe that he believed somebody was going to pick him up or give him a ride. Certainly the description of the Tippett slang sounds like, not that he necessarily knew Tippett, but that he was going over to talk to him. There was not a, he wasn't running from Tippett or something. He went over to have a conversation and in that context shot him. God only knows. But I believe Oswald was contacted somebody, was told something, did what he was told, had no idea what was going on. The ticket. The, yeah, and, there's, and the, well, but, Tippett is the only case that they would have been able to actually convict Oswald of shooting um i mean they probably would not have been able to do that one either but that's the only one they had a chance of and they the dallas police were aware of that fact that they had essentially no evidence 
that Oswald killed the president. And Oswald even says, nobody has charged me with that, as you pointed out, because nobody had, because he he denied it. And since he denied it and the evidence was all messed up, even at that early point, right, there was even a confusion about the rifle that, and there was into the documentary record, the wrong rifle was listed. Um, the um, the tippet shooting is is where you can try to nail Oswald. And the police were well aware of that. The and statement. again, if if Tippett was doing something strange, if he there was no reason to understand why he was where he was, who the hell sent Tippett there? What's Tippett up to? This idea of mm-hmm. stopping him because he looked like anything—that's ludicrous. I, you know, all you have to do is visit Dallas and see how far away Oak Cliff is, and recognize it has no relationship to downtown Dallas. The idea that you and and secondly, the, as we know, the description of the uh, the shooter was pretty vague, kind of medium height, medium. I mean, come on. Uh, the the only thing uh, you know, the color of the skin was probably the only thing distinctive that he was believed to be Caucasian. But well, the official testimony from the person that was in the theater, the ticket booth. When she called the cops because there's a person that had ducked into the theater and it was strange because a bunch of cop cars had just walked past, gone past, drove past. Um, she stated that this person had killed the president and the person on the other end of the line said the person we looking for killed a cop. Does he fit this description? Then she described the person and they said, that sounds like our guy will be right over. And that's when the police came in and started swarming the theater. So at that point, you can already get Dallas doesn't care about the looking for the killer or the president. They're there for the killing of a cop now. Yeah, also the the, the confluence of all those police cars, you know, it's very interesting. There was a guy I'm blocking on his name who took photographs of the crowd outside the Texas theater very good photos. He was a professional photographer. I'm blocking his name. When I contacted him, he was in the Panama Canal zone and was pretty helpful. He said that that the idea that this person killed the president or something, that he believed somebody shouted that out in the, actually in the uh, crowd. But he said it was a very large crowd, which attracted him and a ton of police cars. Nobody knew what the hell was going on, but some kind of action. But with, uh, kind of blocking on his name, but uh, it didn't prove anything. But I was curious what was going on around there to have so many, so many people. Uh, and it may just be the confluence of all those cop cars. Well, D- Joe McBride listened to the um, the audio tapes, and he pointed out that when the when it's noted that the president was shot, there's very little activity, and then. When it's announced that the police officer shot, all of a sudden there's a flurry of activity and the Dallas police is suddenly very interested and there's all kinds of stuff going on. And um, when he interviewed, uh, oh my God, I can't think of the man in the white hat. I just blanked on his name. Oh, which wow. actually I talked to him too. Jack um, Rebel? No, no, no. The uh, the man in the white hat that's standing there with Oswald Lavelle? Uh, when he's Rebel. actually shot by Jack Ruby. Uh, it, it's what it's yeah jim lavelle jim lavelle so uh jim lavelle uh said something actually very shocking to joe mcbride but he said that basically that nobody cared about the fact that kennedy was killed in, in the dallas police which makes sense but having one of their own killed all of a sudden there's all of this energy and activity that comes about because of that 
You know, and to add to that, which makes a lot of sense, the cops don't see themselves as dealing with political assassinations. That's not the kind of thing they ever deal with. They're, but the killing of a police officer or the killing of an average citizen, ironically, that's in their wheelhouse. Yeah. Although there was a lot of stuff that, I mean, when I talked, I talked to Jim Lavelle way later in 2013, maybe something like that. So it was, and, um, he said that they did not canvas the area of the tippet shooting. Okay. Uh, that is crazy. I, I used to be a private investigator. So a canvas is standard for any, so when I investigate, it's it just what you do. You know, I used to investigate like a, somebody robbed a pharmacy or something. I'm going to go through the area and ask, Hey, do you see these guys? What are, that's standard. And in the middle of a day in which the president has been shot, they just decide not to hell with it. We're not going to do standard police procedure. That's a tip off right there. Well, interesting you say that. When I first heard Mark Lane speak at, in, in Ithaca in, in the fall, the book came out. Um, one of the things that that got me interested in the case was his talk about Aquia Clemens and the fact that somebody came and threatened her. and it wasn't clear it was a police officer. She, we, in fact, you know, she was scared as, you know, this is black lady living in Dallas in this kind of context. But that was one of the examples of threats to witnesses that Mark threw in in his lecture that, that kind of got me thinking. And I remember a, a law student sitting next to me, a, um, leaned over and said, Lane's either lying through his teeth or there's a major conspiracy. I've never forgotten those words. His name was George Alexis. He's deceased now. I tried to look him up, but never forget that. It was a, you know, cause I was there and there were law students, other people listening. And, you know, I certainly didn't know shit from Shinola, as they say. I was, I was studying wildlife management, but but George was a law student, so that counted. And he said, yep, Lane's either lying through his teeth or there's a major conspiracy. It's interesting. And that to me, was the kind of thing that that got, got me thinking. It's interesting to me the fact that the Kennedy assassination is like Oswald's, what he's known for. But then it seems like when you look at like the Tippett shooting, the one that like is like the red herring or the one that you, I, I mean, you don't really – a lot of people don't even know that there was another cop killed. They just know about it. It was just – Kennedy was killed. Um, but if you look at that one, that's the one that it seems like the most evidence came out against him on that one. Like that was the one they really tried to pin him on. And I'm not saying there's enough evidence to prove that he did do it. I'm just saying that's the one where when you start getting into the details of like, how do you know he killed Kennedy? Once you leave the book depository building, they go right to this Tippett scenario. And this Tippett scenario has a bunch of weird stuff that that starts popping out of it. I'm still surprised that the person that went over to Tippett, grabbed his gun and put it on the the car and then goes and grabs his radio and starts radioing in. I'm like, is that anything for a civilian to start doing? Like, that's the strangest thing. And then, I mean, Joe McBride, when he was on here, he was talking about how there were two cops, but then one left to go deal with an incident that happened. So that's even suspicious as well, too. I don't know about the whole boarding house thing. That still is a little bit hazy in my mind because a car that honked outside and, you know. they Oh, yeah. They, Police car driving by. That's wild. Yeah, but if you look at the statements of the person that was, I guess, out on their porch that also was 
a witness to the shooting that also gave a testimony talked about seeing a kid that was running across her lawn while scattering shells. So you go, okay, where's the rest of their stuff? That person doesn't have anything else. They only went to Helen Markham who starts, I think it's Helen Markham who starts stating a bunch of things about how she had her hands in front of her face screaming as this cop gets shot. I'm like, then how'd you see it? And it was just, there's a bunch of weird things, but you you saw where there, certain people were cherry picked for their statements. But like I said, this Tippett scenario is very confusing, but also it's the one thing when you really start digging into the evidence that seems like it has a lot of stuff to it, which is what they're trying to pin on for like, this is how we know he killed Kennedy because of all of this right here. I also well, think no, it's no significant that the, uh, the oh, Tippett slang did contribute uh, to people's belief that he was an evildoer. Yeah, sorry, Joe, I didn't mean to. Oh, no, you're fine. I was just going to say, I think it's also significant um, that Oak Cliff has traditionally been a uh, primarily African-American part of the city of Dallas. And it was so um, even down to about 1996 or so. I had a girlfriend that went to college in Dallas, and we spent some time in Oak Cliff because we had friends there. Um, and so the the level of police intimidation, particularly in 1963 would be significant. I mean, Akilah Clemens is obviously putting her life on the line and there might not be a lot of other people willing to do that, you know, as, as a, especially as a black woman, you know, coming forward to say something against the police. That's, you know, extraordinarily brave. It would be brave in 2023 and in 19th, you know, forget it. You know, until this moment, I never knew, I didn't know that. That's a fascinating piece of additional uh, background here that, it does change the picture quite a bit. That's interesting. I've never heard that before. Uh, the kind of person that comes up with a lot of Dallas stuff used to be Mary Farrell because she lived there, but I'd never heard uh, that description of Oak Cliff. Boy, does that ever make this even more mind-boggling. I, um, I'm aware of the DPD and uh, the John Birch Society, the members being a lot of members being the, the John Birch Society. And if you look into a little bit of the John Birch Society, they're not very known for their equality things. They're more about uh, a certain thing. So it makes sense. I mean, there's a lot of people at the TSBD that were African-American or something like that. And, you know, they could that could that hinder statements? A hundred percent. I mean, you're got you're being questioned about the guy who just killed a cop. And you work with the guy and, you know, I, for me, I'd be like, I don't know, you know, I'm just going to, you know, dodge the other way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a, um, I mean, I, and I've, I've said this before, but one of the things about uh, being a private investigator is I spent time in a lot of police stations uh, all over Texas and all over California, Southern California, primarily. And um, you will notice that they all belong to a Masonic lodge. And I'm not getting into Freemasonic conspiracies, but what I am saying is that they swear fealty to one another. So that's what they talk about, the thin blue line that these guys stick together. So it doesn't it doesn't matter what you were before you joined the police force. When you join the police force, you're blue. And if you say anything against the police force, then that becomes a betrayal. If you expect to get ahead or even make a career of it, absolutely, you you join the club. There There is no... Oh, God, wait, wait, you know, the George Floyd thing and all this stuff in Minneapolis, that's a good example of the kind of thing. I mean, Minneapolis is not a real right wing town, but the point is within the department, you you play ball, or you don't play ball. 
There was um that actually makes a lot more sense because if you look at like there's a DPD statement. Like I said, I'm looking through a bunch of statements right now, and another one is the Jack Ruby scenario. How did he get into the Dallas police? And there is a statement from a Dallas police officer that talked about that this person did approach and go up this ramp. And then he thought that the other cop was going to stop him and catch him or say anything about that. But even he didn't mention a single thing about it. Like this person, like he should have been stopped. We both saw him. I saw him make eye contact with the guy, but he never mentioned it to me. And we never, there was no explanation of that. Which only adds more of like, okay, so is there certain people getting leniency? Obviously, we know Jack Ruby was there. He was dressed up like a reporter and a bunch of things of this sort. But there's um, and he knew a lot of cops. Yeah, so that's like what I'm saying is it's pointing out another flaw in the whole like Jack Ruby didn't have any Dallas police connections and things of that sort. So why did this person's statement get buried in with the many other statements that are out there and not get picked to be an investigative thing? Well, Nancy Perrin Rich uh, uh, met, said that she thought he knew about half of the police force on a first name basis. I don't know if that's true, but uh, certainly uh, the guy was uh, well connected. Well, even Nancy Perrin Rich goes to Dallas looking for a job with the police. They didn't have any, but they sent her to Ruby, <laughs> became, became her employer. I mean, that kind of you know, speaks for itself. But anyway, that, that, yeah, I think it's the other thing is, you know, to me, one of the key things is the killing of Oswald required exquisite timing. You consider Ruby is sending a, a cabling money to Little Lynn Carlin, you know, minutes before. And Ruby was believed to be still in bed at the time when Oswald was supposed to be moved. Remember, they delayed and delayed and delayed. Uh, Ruby wakes up, goes there. And then uh, the other piece to that is that we don't know who gave the order to bring Oswald down, but we know that that timing was very, very critical. And, you know, Fritz and Curry, they each claim the other did it, but it's very key as to who gave that order and, and the timing of it. The other thing is, of course, we've all heard the beeping of the horn in the, in the, in the basement. <laughs> It's hard to believe. I mean, he's that there. The horn beeps and then Ruby comes out. I mean, it, it was hard to believe. And also that the we know that the two officers, Lavelle and I can't remember the other guy's name, were told to hold on to Oswald tight because um, there was some kind of risk. They weren't told that been numerous threats received on Oswald's life. That those people claimed that they were never told any of that. So. But it's an exquisite kind of setup, and it absolutely had to be done in public, given the situation. It had to be a public execution that could be explained away. It's the guy, uh, Dallas police officer Billy Grammer, that talked about that there was multiple threats. And then when he heard it on the phone about them trying to kill Oswald, he realized that the voice that – was on the phone was Jack Ruby that had called and said that's from officer Billy Grammer that said that I had to look up the name on my phone because I there's a clip of him talking about that he goes I realized that this was I think he says it was Jack Ruby calling about killing Oswald he can't miss that southern draw in that but he literally stated that and there's multiple accounts of someone saying that they're calling saying that Oswald was going to be killed and then it's like why didn't you take any of those at face value when you have this person in your custody well, I didn't know that. I, I knew about the threats. I had no idea that there was anybody that uh, linked it actually to Ruby making the call. That's fascinating. And, it, and it's a little bit 
little bit hard to believe when he says that he didn't know because um, it interviewed Wes Wise. Uh, uh, Wes Wise was a reporter at the time. He later became the mayor of Dallas in the 70s. And Wes said that there were crowds of people that were gathering at street corners, like openly chanting that they wanted to, to lynch Oswald. Um, that the, the, yes, that's what, that's what Wes told us. He said there was, he was concerned that there was violence in the air, that they were like, you know, we need to get this guy. Um, of course, he also said that, that Jack Ruby, he, I don't know if he's the original source of this story, but he did say that Jack Ruby told Wes that he was very concerned about Jackie Kennedy. And because, you know, Ruby later says, you know, he wanted to spare Jackie That's, Kennedy yeah. the trial. That became the yeah. public explanation. The public explanation. But whether whether he specifically told Wes, because Wes was a newsman, that story. And it was very, like, I think Wes said he was in a car and, like, Ruby came up. I may be getting some of these details wrong, but it was a very casual, quick encounter. But Ruby came up and said, oh, my God, I can't, you know, I'm so worried about Jackie Kennedy, which, you know. Ruby's this mobster. Like, why is he concerned about Jack? Yeah, but didn't his but lawyer also make a terrible excuse about saying that Jack Ruby had some type of epileptic uh, fit or something like that that caused him to shoot Oswald? It's like he fucking he ran up to the guy and shot him. And I'm still surprised at the number of people that were just like, hey, what's going on here? Like, I'm going to keep staring and not trying to stop because the number of people that tackled them. I and mean, you can look at the reporters and the interviews of reporters that talked about I jumped on Ruby and they got the gun away from him. And it was just like it happens so quick. Yeah, I understand that. But this guy, they're walking down a long corridor hallway. You don't see a guy with a gun that's slowly walking up. Like, that's why he got conspiracies of people saying Jack Ruby didn't do it. I'm like, geez, what are we talking about here? It's it's not as long as you think. So I've actually been to the parking garage. So um, in fact, I went in and took pictures and stuff. Um, though, so you come out, there's a door that they come out of, but the actual area kind of looks bigger in the photograph than it is in real life. Interesting. It's actually tight. Yeah, it's actually pretty tight. And especially with all the people in there, I can, I mean, people must've been like, you know, they're right up next to each other. Um. I should send you those. I've got. I'll send you the photographs. Maybe you can put them up. Well, that's somewhere. that's Consider quite that. interesting. I I've never been there, but that uh, that underlines even more the notion that there was exquisite timing required to make this happen. Um, you know, uh, interesting. Uh, Harold Weisberg had a uh, at one point got off on a thing that the guy who uh, whose actions uh, also resulted in Oswald's death was a fifth year medical student. Uh, Bieberdorf, who was in the ambulance, and you know he didn't get very quick attention. And when he did, uh, Bieberdorf did external cardiac massage, which had the impact of pumping the blood out of Oswald's body. When Oswald was actually, uh, when they finally got him there, he I think there was like three to four liters of blood. Well. <laughs> The body only has about four liters of blood in it. And uh, Harold said that, you know, that uh, they not only didn't have a, a Cracker Jack readily available intervener here, but that they had somebody that may have made a huge medical mistake. Uh, I, I I certainly think, however, uh, a shot of that caliber in the gut normally kills. Although I had one client who shot himself there and missed everything big and lived to tell about it still alive today but the suicide attempt didn't work but 
But the normally the shot in the gut, there's so many arteries and veins, big vessels. If you get get one of them, you just can't stop the loss of blood. But anyway, this is an example of one of the thousands of little side trips you can take in this case. Um, obviously, Ruby shooting Oswald was the was the real deal. That's the most suspicious one. And you mentioned least. earlier about the uh, yeah, you about the, that's why I never really went into the medical evidence very much because I figure there's nothing that I can see that Cyril Wagner, or Gary Aguilar, you know, people who are experts in that. Um, you know, we'll be able to see that, especially sort of whacked, my God, you know. Um, and I know other people have, but I, and I also don't think I'd have any credibility talking about that because I'm not, you know, I, I don't have a medical degree. That's not my my field. So I've done other things. But that's how that's how I've had to, you kind of have to pick and choose because you, if you try to do everything, it just, you know, becomes a mess. By the way, uh, Cyril, I, 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 I and David Lifton accompanied Cyril to the archives to see the x-rays and photos we weren't allowed in obviously but we communicated with him through the just the the, the phone in the hallway essentially we had a, a time set where he would call call us from there this is before cell phones and stuff and um i'll never forget his initial response to seeing them was he said he was pissed at his colleagues fisher and others he said they said you can see the uh the the, the wound in the throat. He said, that's bullshit. All you can see is a tracheostomy scar. You have to be told that it was cut through the wound. They're, they're not clear. You can't clearly see it. They're, they just plain lied about the clarity of it. But he, he went through a whole series of things. And then when he got to the head, and David had prepared a really neat idea. He took cellophane overlays and put hatch marks on it, marks on it so you could you could actually map where fragments were. Cyril said he looked at the looked at the brain, and this is after saying, you know, I, I should tell you, you need a question documents expert, because I don't know that that was Kennedy's brain. But what he saw was a, a, uh, a fog of dust-like particles of metal. He said the brain was just, it, he said there were some, yes, there were some pieces of metal, but he said mainly you had this huge, fogged in stuff where he said it was it was like he said i've never seen quite like it but he said it was you know like a mist well if you consider this could have been an exploding shell mercury fulminate bullet or something like that that's exactly what you could have but he had never seen that before but his initial response was he was shocked and he was angry at the various pathologists who've been brought in the fisher panel and whatever to do this smooth over work at the end he just said this is bullshit you can't you can't see what they said they could see in the photos he said i'm experienced and but the other piece was that uh fisher himself turned out to have been a key person in that part of the later cover-up in that an assistant attorney general who's not on the record anywhere uh, named jaffe his son was a friend of mine and the friend attended a work a thing I gave on this thing got got religion called his dad who had been there and was part of the setup of the Fisher thing, and his dad was you know they got in an argument on the phone it was really funny the olds are sitting there and this fierce arguments going on, and we had no idea that his father had been actually there with the Fisher panel it helps out he said that Fisher absolutely 
was convinced and Fisher was pushing it and Fisher pushed the other people. He said that actually it was Fisher. Uh, it, so this wasn't just people kowtowing, but he said Fisher really, now we, again, we're never able to really, but I would love to have found out more about Fisher because he, he said Fisher absolutely drove that boat. And he said it wasn't even the FBI guys, it was Fisher pushing that line. Anyway, again, one of those thousands of sidelights that causes you to realize if you're doing a film or doing a podcast, you got to stay away from all that stuff. There's too much of it. But if you're talking about later conspiracy, I do believe the thing, if it's vulnerable, it's going to be on some of the cover-up or the later stuff because some of those people were alive. They, you know, I think the people who did the shooting are long dead. We're long dead at the time, probably. Now, Joe, I know you had some questions for Gary, if you wanted to ask some of your questions. Well, if you will indulge me, I, I do. Because so one of the things that happens when you're when you're Johnny come lately at this at this kind of thing, right? I mean, what am I going to do? I was I was negative nine at the time of the Kennedy assassination, right? So I didn't get to meet a lot of uh, folks that I think including jim garrison um he worked with um but i was curious did i, I met uh paris flamond like in the last six months of his life basically and we had started to sort of become pen pals and then he died did you did you know paris very well or did you, did you i didn't work know paris it. i had read his I read his stuff but i didn't know him okay okay i was curious about that because his book is pretty good um i think it you know is, there are, yeah. there are there are mistakes and things like that because he's doing, you know, reporting as it's happening, but he's inside the garrison camp. I always thought that's, that's, it was really fascinating. And I know you, you knew Mark Lane, or at least you, you worked with Mark Lane some. Um, and, I, and yeah, uh, no, Mark, Mark's talk at Ithaca got me interested in the case. And then I got in touch with him later. And that's part of how I got in touch with Vince Salandria. And, uh, and then uh, Mark, uh, came out here to give a talk and he and I spent some time talking. That was right after he had been to New Orleans, visited with Garrison. So when I wrote an article called um, on this for Ivory Tower Magazine, a little campus magazine at University of Minnesota, I had a section in there where I, at the very end where I talked about um, his enthusiasm about um, Garrison so forth. But I, I I didn't I didn't know I didn't really know Mark very well. The other thing about Mark is he he ended up of course going all over the map. And one of the things that I found very troubling was first of all I don't think he contributed good lawyer thinking to the Garrison thing. I think he uh, there were things like uh, which at the time I I didn't realize the limitations he. he Perry Russo and the sodium amytal and stuff like that. That's not that's not a truth serum per se. I mean, it, at times it's you get things out of people, but that can render testimony unusable uh, too. And um, but Mark, I never forget. Mark said he's got them, Gary. He's got them. Boy, I would not describe that case as especially not at the beginning as he got them. As much as I believe the big picture. Uh, this particular uh, conspiratorial talk, I would call it, um, was flimsy at best, 
to link it to what happened in Dallas. The second thing is that since I believe Oswald's role in Dallas was was not a role in the killing, but a role that going to be the patsy blamed for it. Uh, I, I look at anything like that as whether it has anything to do with a setup of some kind, but I don't view that as part of what Garrison had to prove, which was that the conspiracy that occurred in New Orleans led to Dallas. And see, that works if you if you believe and argue that the rifle was taken in that day, that's his link. And as Shaw's lawyers pointed out from the beginning, is that every critic in the world doesn't agree with that. Nobody believes that Oswald carried that weapon in, who's critical of our report, because of, of the dozen impossibilities there. So, um, well, you leave up to the I, statements I of the curtain rods entering the book depository building, and that comes from Buell Frazier. But then Buell Frazier's testimony has been flipping back and forth, and he just wrote a new book that changes the whole opinion that he's had before. But then there's a statement on someone on the TSBD that talked about that they didn't see Oswald with a package. But that, again, there's the lack of investigative stuff, which is the issue here, is that anything that would be the conspiracy line was never investigated into, which, like I said, the real thing you can prove on, and I think with a lot of the Kennedy stuff, you just get lost. And I think you end up going down roles where researchers end up doing a little bit more damage at times. It's not their fault. It's just this like the best damn psyops you ever seen because there is so much out there. But if you look at like what you can prove is the biggest lie, which is that the CIA didn't have a file on Oswald. And then you get into what we know now, which is they did have a file, but you look at the emails they sent back saying, we never had a debrief of Oswald, or we never classified this as a debrief. We never had a file on Oswald at 201. Then you find documents saying they pulled their 201 files on Oswald. Of course, they had a files on him because he went to another country and tried to defect or tear up his citizenship. So why are they lying then? That's the conspiracy there, and that's something that has not been explained. It just becomes – well, it can be justified because you try to defect. It's like, okay, that's fine, but that's what I'm trying to do is trying to find what the maybe another really crazy turnaround would be or the criticism against the conspiracy thought. But the one thing I can't find that was explained for everybody pulling their files on Oswald and then lying about the file thing, are you saying a security breach? Well, then what does that mean Oswald was connected to? What was he – you guys said he was a lonely loser. Were you protecting the security thing again? So you see the lying part where there's the mistrust, and that's like the – yeah, that's the vein you need to keep mining for the public to get on the conversation. But here's where the challenge comes in. Um, I believe each of these agencies was quickly trying to sever any tie, any link to Oswald. Certainly, Jed Hoover was in that bag real quick. And we have some of the evidence we have because they weren't all working together to cover up. They were each they were each covering up other things. Look at all the stuff we learned about plots to kill Castro, all the other stuff that came out as a result of this. They were running to cover up things, including look at the issue of the, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, Louisiana. They had here you have the FBI having a tape of the of the killer in that being identified, J.M. Moltier. That was a the worst racial crime of the century. It was, they claimed they had no leads. And here we have an actual tape of a man naming the person who did the bombing. Uh, all that stuff, this opened up so many doors. That, so you have cover up connected with your connection with Oswald because nobody wants to believe you failed in your duty and that's why it happened. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, 
you have all kinds of other crimes, assassinations in other countries, uh, you name it, that are potentially exposed. And in fact, many of which did get exposed by the Kennedy case. Uh, so that muddles the thing because it's hard to tell who's covering up the killing of the president as opposed to connections with Oswald or other things. Look at the James Powell thing. Guys, in, Army intelligence inside the depository on, on duty that day. He was on duty. We know that now. We know that he actually was assigned to be there. For what reason? And he took photographs that no one's ever seen. And why was he not questioned? Here's a, At the very least, here is a professional observer taking photographs on site inside the depository. They close the doors and who they get? Like James Powell. We still today, now I'm, I'm not up on things, so maybe I'm wrong, but as far as I know, we don't know shit about, again, what was the assignment? If he's on assignment, wasn't he was happened to be around Dealey Plaza as a tourist or something? He was there on assignment. What the hell's going on here? Jump on two points you just made, which I think are great. Um, one is that because there's so because there's so many things that are going on that are dirty, you don't always know what somebody is protecting. And one great example of this that I've I mean, I've talked about this before. You know, a lot of people will say that, uh, including Haldeman, right? That when Richard Nixon was saying the whole Bay of Pigs thing, that he was talking about the Kennedy assassination. Um, but even that. Like, what about the Kennedy assassination? I mean, the, the the inference is that Nixon is involved in the Kennedy assassination. There has, but that that's an inference. We don't actually have direct evidence of that. Nixon may be may be covering up any one of a dozen other things that are going on. So, JFK may be the biggest elephant in the room, but he's not the only elephant in the room, and that's part of what makes this such a hall of mirrors. And the other thing is uh, to go back to your original point about. Uh, the garrison investigation, I think the jurors got it right, right? The jurors said that they believed that Garrison had proved that there was a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. He had not proved that Clay Shaw was involved in that conspiracy. Now, it happens, I agree with Garrison. I think Clay Shaw was involved. But at the time, he could not prove that. And I don't know that you could necessarily prove it now. Um, but he's certainly, you know, he fits the profile. He's got all these different connections. I don't want to get on a big thing about Clay Shaw. But the point being that in a legal sense, Garrison was chasing rainbows. Like it was going to be very difficult to actually prove that this guy was specifically involved in this conspiracy, even though he convinced the jurors that there was one. Well, good observation. I love your thing of the room of mirrors. I think that's that's a brilliant way to capture a lot of what we're dealing with. Uh, and I would agree. I, I believe Shaw played a role. I don't believe he's the kind of guy that sets up the actual operation. I think you're dealing with a whole different kind of person for that. But I think there were lots of people that had to do with the taint on Oswald or the backup you'd need uh, to show that uh, the guy had been thinking about it before and, you know, there's um there's a there's a word national security or this idea of secrecy because you know our enemy could get our secrets and I really question that because like we all know MK Ultra, um 
I would have said if they would have just been like if they weren't unwitting citizens that they did too. If they just said, hey, want to take LSD while we watch you in a room? There would be a plenty of people that would have signed up for that when we would have had a whole different mindset of that. But if you really look at what they're protecting with the idea of national security, I try and tackle this from – I don't have any legal background, but I try and think of this if like lawyers speak. How are things being written down that necessarily don't mean sense? For instance, the person that requested from a research review board, not the assassinations review board, but a different one, talking about Agent Demencia interviewing a person that worked at a Minsk fac uh, factory in Minsk in 1959. Do you have this file on this person? And they say no. And then six months later, they request again saying this person insists that he interviewed someone and this was this. And they go, oh, we didn't classify that as a debrief. Are they lying? No, but it's like a legal speak type situation. Get all the words correctly, which you start boiling down into the Secret Service member, which is an area I'm looking at about the one that was allegedly on the knoll um, that apparently was flashing around a badge. Secret Service said there wasn't anybody up there. So, yeah, but then I find an article or in the, I forgot what report it was, but it was about what the CIA could do. They, they could offer members to help out the Secret Service if they needed help doing their duties to protect the president. So was there a Secret Service person on the knoll? No. OK, they're not lying. But did, was it a CIA person that was acting like a Secret Service member to help out with the president in his trip to Dallas? That could be the legal speak out. And that's what I'm trying to look at through this case is that there's a lot of this technical or legal mumbo jumbo, which is like they're not wrong, but they're also kind of like dicks. I hate to say it like that, but like you're looking at it like you can't prove this in court because they're not technically lying or committing perjury or doing any of these types of things. They're just forming everything really strangely. And if you read the church committee report, the CIA had found a way to word certain things to go to Congress so they could do some of their activities without them breaking the codes or standards that Congress would flag and be like, you can't do this. So it's a common tactic, and there's now a track record history of it, and we have well documentation of what that can lead to and what activities that could be, wiretapping people, um, academic influence or influence on academic campuses. We see that with the reports that we have, so it's just about looking at this from like – I would say the lawyer speak stuff, which is not the lying aspect but it's what causes a lot of confusion as well too with people where they start seeing like everything starts to become like a red herring you're like oh my god this 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 well it's it's a good point um i used to teach uh contract law uh, for casualty adjusters um and i've worked for lawyers and i've i've written uh, i've been involved in casualty litigation and one of the things that happens is you're exactly right that there is a parsing of words that is not the traditional the way that people think of traditional meanings of words don't always apply when you're talking about a legal document or an agreed upon definition. And one of the, the example I like to bring up with, with people is when, uh, when Bill Clinton was testifying on television on CNN, and um, he said that oral sex on the deponent, he very, very, I always remembered this phrase ever since I was a kid, because it was just like this, what um, did not qualify as sex because at the beginning of this process, we had agreed that sex was this and this and this and this, and that wasn't in there. So when I said I did not have sex with this woman, I wasn't lying. See, that's a, that's a legal argument. And that stuff, and he was right. He was correct. He was not lying because this is what the definition is. And that's the way law is. It's very precise. You have to say, if I'm going to prove this, I have to prove this. I don't the think Hillary Clinton gave a damn about the legal speak about it. Right, yeah. Well, that's, that's the point. The, yeah, everybody was mad. Yeah. 
You know, in terms of this uh, national security, though, as we know, it gets invoked in all kinds of ridiculous things. My, getting access to documents of myself in the National Archives, uh, or from uh, not National Archives, from various agencies, they were all classified for reasons of national security. And there's a long list of things. One is that the exposure of them would constitute a clear and present danger to the security of the United States. It goes on and on. You read this thing and say, what the hell? Some something that I said or I know or I've talked about or I've written about. What the hell is this? That you can blank an entire page. The only thing showing is my name in the middle of the page. It's the only thing not blanked out. The page numbers blanked out. I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking, what the hell? This is crazy. Uh, and at the time, this is about activities when I was a you know a graduate student. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I, I'd not, it's before I'd been out of the country. I hadn't served in the armed forces. I mean, there's a whole lot of things that would seem to be, I mean, I'm nothing. <laughs> How the hell? Clear and present danger, huh? But again, the unfortunate thing is people can evoke that without anybody looking over their shoulder. And, you know, Robbie, you're right about the explanations given. But, uh, and you're right, uh, Joe, about the legalese. But the bottom line is, folks that do the classifying don't need any of that shit. They just declare it. And then how do you take it on or challenge it? You got to know what what it's about. Well, it's the illusion of free press. you don't get to press. do that. It's the illusion of free press. It's the illusion of all this type of stuff that we have that everyone thinks like, oh, because I filed for a Freedom of Information Act thing and I paid the money, I should be able to get it, right? It's like, well, no, that's... When we look at what they're doing, I mean, they can just be like, nope, sorry, we don't have any, we cannot confirm or deny is usually their response on so many things. And I mean, we're lucky we're able to get so much that we have now, but even then after the whole, after we had 9-11 and everything, there became this reclassification aspect to some documents that were considered dangerous secrets. And that's a really big issue because now we get some of the Kennedy stuff that's almost 60 years now. And they're talking about being able to reclassify certain documents and some things that could release that could be potential security threats. And it's like- at this point, if you're talking about sources and methods and protecting your sources and methods, I'd like to know what are those sources and methods because why the hell are you still doing something from the 60s if – I mean it has to be working great. So I'm really curious out of what I've learned from them of what they're protecting, and I've talked to people from – the intelligence side that protect the intelligence and patriots of that community. So I've tried to create this balanced perspective, but I'm still very critical on just defining terms. I mean, you leave this open door policy on things and I run into roadblocks like I do with the Kennedy assassination, where there's a bunch of things that have links to certain things and I go and click on it and it says cannot be found. But someone got it in their book or something and it's not online, which is the biggest danger because there's so much out there that needs to be at least received, and much as the Internet Archive is probably my best resource for Weisberg's collections, the DPD archives on police reports and things, where it's instant access for someone to be able to find and start doing some deep diving on. And there could have been a lot more progress that have been considered if we looked at what the Internet would have impacted on maybe 30 years ago if we would have had it and we would have had this giant burst of instant information or sources for people to be able to find. I mean, you guys built up a whole knowledge base in your head. I'm lucky to get it recorded so other people can access and listen to some of your thoughts, but a lot of people 
they're just their knowledge on all this was like, oh yeah, Oswald did it. Why? Because for the fame. Well, then just bring up why did he claim he was a patsy? Like that just doesn't make sense for the fame aspect of things. And then they start looking up things and seeing how many different ideas are out there, which they it can consume them and you can back out from it. But it's really important that the amount of work that you guys have done, the also being able to interview and question and be friends with some of these uh, researchers for me at least. It's a you know, it's an, always been an honor to speak with you guys. Every time I have you guys on my show, I appreciate the time. Um, I'm not ending the conversation. I'm just saying it's it for me. Like I said, I'm the third, I will the fourth, whatever, fifth generation researcher that's coming in. So just because my thought process is different than maybe how you guys did your research and things of that sort. But I'm a combination of all the people I've been able to talk to and understand it. God, dude, if this isn't like one of the most fascinating stories, man, I agree with John Orr where he says it's got criminals, it's got government conspiracy it's got all these types of things rolled up into one little beautiful story but when does that payoff happen when do we get the final answers or we get a finally a disclosure and a full say on everything and that's what the danger is i mean i don't know it's up to them to release documents and even then are we going to have the ones that we are going to link us through to get an answer i feel like they destroyed those long ago yeah, I doubt seriously that there uh, – I think the stuff that got revealed had to do with the fact that people didn't realize it could lead somewhere. Again, the most brilliant thing that Harold did was my first archives run. Uh, Harold wanted me to hit the GAI files, the general administrative files. And I thought, what the hell for? You know, it's not any of the stuff we're looking at. He was absolutely right. It was everything we're looking at because it included memos from attorneys about things that are classified, things that we would never have known about, except we found the junior attorneys were kibitzing back and forth about it. And all those little little memos were there piled up. It was brilliant. Uh, they Nobody went through them to classify them because they weren't documents. They were just little memos, scraps of paper, uh, taking up space, you know, and uh, he was absolutely right. That's where that's where the real story, a uh, good part of the story, began to unravel. But who would have thought that? Again, the, the, the but the sheer volume of this, and you're right. The the ability to research today is thousand times better than what we had. We we had nothing like this. Uh, but the idea that there are magic documents there, I think, is silly. Be in all honesty, I think what it, what there may be is documents that would give you other pieces of the puzzle, but not the big story. Uh, and I think that the chances to get at any part of the big story um, ended with, unfortunately, I think uh, the passage of time. And I believe in terms of the deaths of individuals, I'm not talking about suspicious deaths. Most of them, people just died of old age. But the reality is that the ability to put on the spot the people about the intelligence part of this, that's when the congressional investigation bogged down. That's when it got shut down. That's when, according to Henry Gonzalez, the Black Caucus was approached and told that a whole bunch of shit was going to come out on King if they continued working. But that was right at the time when they were getting in on the intelligence stuff that's the only group that could have put any of those people on the witness stand, put them on the spot. Even to know what was going on with Air Force One and the cabinet plane and all those things that Vince and I uh, speculated about. But we all we could show was the big picture, but we 
we never could pull together who was running the show exactly, for example. That could, could have been done, but it wasn't done. Could you imagine being a person that bought a ham radio so you can listen in on things, and next thing you know, you hear Air Force One talking on an open channel, and you're like, holy shit, what is going – that'll really send you down a spiral down there. I'd be losing my mind. Well, this is a great. This would be a seven days in May. It'd be a great movie. You, you got you got all the same things. You got the bombers up in the air, and you got national security, and you got a code book missing. Yeah, wild, wild, wild absolutely wild. Which but Pierre, like, Pierre somebody was smart. Oh yeah. So, well, but you know, yeah. and then when when Salinger offered to let Vince have the tape, um. It turned out it was gone from his personal papers to the National Archives. That was the end of that. We hear we got the acknowledgement. We got the agreement to actually let Vince have access to it, and it was gone. Not from the general commission files, but from his personal files in the National Archives. And that's no different when I went looking for the, the, first, the first file I went looking for was not there and has never reappeared, and that was a file that consisted entirely a commission document, which was photos of Lee Harvey Oswald, all the photos of Lee Harvey Oswald. You know that that was gone real fast. And of course, I wanted it because we knew that people had been mistaken for Oswald. And I wanted to, and Oswald looks different in different photos. So you want to know which of these Oswalds do you, do you remember? I think the Ruby Oswald thing, that one incident was clearly Larry Crayford. I think there's not much doubt, but and I don't think Larry Crayford looks like Oswald, except he is, you know, mid-sized American with, you know, Caucasian. I mean, but that, all that, I was going to start out my work with those photos. <laughs> it wasn't to be. Didn't work. Yeah, no, the guy at the Mexican embassy is, I think he looks like Dick like he does not look like Lee Harvey Oswald. I know you see this stuff like that, <laughs> but you see those are the kinds of things you'd like to have a witness or somebody look at it and say that's that's what the person looks at. The, the one in Mexico is so ludicrous that <laughs> I don't think has anybody identified who that guy is. I mean, he's obviously not Oswald, but did anybody ever find out who he actually was? <laughs> I want to I mean, say I read somebody. Who had an ID? Who I don't know, but I, think it's, I don't think it's a positive ID. Yeah, he had the same similar ID. receding hairline type thing, but he was a little bit heavier than Oswald was, right? Oh, much. Uh, yeah, he he was short, short. So, ironically, you know, the uh, 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 was it Warren Reynolds who described the uh, there were two people seen on the sixth floor. One was a short, thick-set guy with a brown suit, and one was the. Uh, or, uh, who was carrying a shorter weapon? Was, was that Randolph Carr? I can't remember who it was that described. There was one short, thick-set guy with a brown suit and a shorter weapon of some kind. I don't believe anybody ever got anything more than it wasn't a long rifle, but it was a, a, perceived to be a weapon. Now, do you do you believe two rifles that were found at the book depository building? I've heard that said before, and I know I think that's Tink's work. But I've seen a photo of one hand being handed down a fire escape or something like that. So it's confusing to me because I can't find any evidence or statements or anything submitted on another rifle being found on the building. I just I see statements from people that pigeons flew off or whatever it is just flew off from the roof. No, there's so. a Weitzman. There, there's a Dallas PD Weitzman sign that's a seven 
1.65 Mauser. Um, I mean, like the Carcano, yeah. Uh, not the Carcano, no. It's the um, uh, the Mauser. I'm not good with weapons. Seven point six five. Oh, the Mauser, yeah, the Mauser. Yeah, the Mauser, yeah. Yeah. Right, and my wait. Yeah, no, there's yeah. official doc. And there's another memo that says it's a Lee Enfield, a British Lee Enfield, which I think is a three. That's the second one that was found on the roof. Well, we don't know that they're separate. What we don't know is where their substitutions was a weapon brought down and needed to be substituted for another weapon. Or is what we don't know is were these distinctly different items that were found, or was was the Mauser in fact found and then the carbine was substituted for it? You need to find a we rifle that, that somebody... has enough power to shake a floor because the guy on the fifth floor talked about that rubble had landed on his shirt. So I don't know a rifle that can do well, and that. The Mauser, is a, the Mauser is apparently a much more plausible weapon. I am not a weapon expert, but I've heard people who are well-versed in weapons. It, it's a better weapon is what I've heard. Yeah, they, they, the, um, the Carcano was is actually nicknamed the humanitarian rifle by the Italian troops that had to use it in World War One, And uh, it um, it's a piece of shit, basically. Well, you got to remember, if, if, if we had any doubts about that particular one, the FBI tested it and found it couldn't shoot straight. And they had to alter the uh, scope because all the shots were high and to the right. Uh, and they also had to oil it so it would, would you, this, so they found the thing as a piece of junk. The scope cost a lot, $11.95 and the rifle was $9.95. The scope cost more than a rifle. And they then had to oil the mechanism so it would work. And they, then when they test fired it, put it in the vice and stuff, it didn't, it didn't shoot straight. So they then, and and what's the big debate? Was it three or four metal shims that they had to use to fix it? <laughs> Come on, that's how fucked up this is, really. Though, think about it. I mean, well, another they issue. Were debating another issue that was trending is because uh, someone had posted up on one of these forums about the that there's a document that talked about uh, Italian carbines being shipped, and it was to go to Cuba because it was supposed to arm some of those some of the civilians there to try and stir up stuff against to overthrow Castro or whatever, just attempts to minimize Castro, basically. Um, and I'd seen that document before, too, but someone had mentioned it being in the 23 release or the newest release. And I said, no, this is stuff from 2018. And that's what I'm seeing with a lot of this 23 release. I only know this because I'm in the documents right now, looking back at what everyone had already looked at years ago. So I'm seeing things and I go, this is a duplicate. This is a duplicate. This is the same thing. Maybe one name is scratched and different, but it's like the illusion of like, we just released 3000 documents to you guys. I'm like, no, you released maybe 20 good ones. And the rest of them are stuff I've seen from 2017 or 2018 and then so on. So like this idea that they're being open and willing to keep budging and moving and keep releasing and keep releasing not only creates hope with people that are interested in the assassination, but it's this illusion of we're giving you answers. I don't see anything that's really relatively new. I mean, the most stuff is JM way related and I can even be like, I mean, yeah, this is interesting stuff, but you know, we have testimonies and statements that are still blacked out with names that have long been deceased. So I'm wondering why you're covering them up. You know, and so many of these things are going to remain that way. I One of the deaths I wrote about, uh, Gary Underhill, ironically, her, 
His nephew is a forensic psychologist who I ran into professionally on the internet. And I wanted to be cautious about, uh, and I, I found a way to throw it in without causing explosion. And he's, oh, yes, Uncle. Uh, yeah, Uncle Gary. Yeah, he's off on all kinds of stuff. I couldn't get him to, it was relatively clear that the family was not questioning the suicide and, or at least, I mean, and it was, there was no way I could make the conversation go forward, but I still believe that you, there were serious questions raised about his death. And he is one of the people who is on record as having told people that he knew something about the case. And the other piece was that he had said that Kennedy was killed by gun runners, which seemed like a ridiculous statement at the time, except Iran-Contra came along and all of a sudden gun runners, huh, fairly central uh, activity that involves the CIA and certain military folks and lots and lots of money. And uh, now, I, all of a sudden, that that wasn't totally out of left field. But again, uh, that's an old death. I mean, it, was the workup done right? Was it really true that he shot himself with his non-dominant hand? I mean, those are all kinds of things that could have been looked at, but you have to have somebody in the family want to be doing it. and. You know, I guess he was a Pentagon consultant. He was involved in all kinds of stuff, but the rest of the family wasn't in on that stuff. They just knew he was involved in some kind of intrigue. And here I was. I thought, well, here I've lucked on. <laughs> wasn't wasn't able to do anything with it. I there wasn't a door there without, you know, me getting into a fight with someone in my field senselessly. I'm telling him gee, aren't you worried that your uncle was, was killed <laughs> as opposed to killed himself? Do you think there's more of a, do you, say, do you think there's more of a fear of censorship from like government and fear from that aspect? Or do you think now this is a lot of self-censorship as well too? I mean, professionally speaking, I know a lot of people believe that publicly they spoke out about like, yes, the Kennedy assassination is they believe conspiracy. And I think there was a recent poll about that and it's still 73% or 74% of people believe that there was a conspiracy. Um, but I've started noticing digging through like a lot of my old grand, like my grandmom's stuff. She almost married a secret service agent to JFK. She was very interested in it, but I never heard a single peep about this or we probably would have had, made me feel less of a freak for being interested in it. But I was like, holy crap, yeah. But not everyone's willing to openly talk about it. So I'm wondering how many people have built up profiles behind closed doors and have never just talked about it. I mean, I take an anonymous poll. I bet you'll have a different answer of things. But I'm just looking at like when you look at like how many people have been just not worried about it because they're self-censoring because they know how this topic is stigmatized as conspiracy. Now I'm seeing a lot more of that self-censorship thing when people tell me that like I talk about things I shouldn't be talking about. And I'm like, oh, I'm not educated on it. I'm trying to figure it out. And they go, no, they're just topics that we stay away from. And I'm like, well, that's you know, the point of conversation is to kind of talk about these things. And this is how things last so long. I, I totally agree with what you just said, every word. I mean, I think that is, in fact, the challenge. Uh, and it's sort of like, why complicate life? Why complicate things? Uh, and these days, being a conspiracy theorist has a much more negative connotation than it did back when we started 
there was uh, there was nowhere near the uh, labeling here that you get put in a whole class of people um, that you know most of us wouldn't consider ourselves part of. So I, I, it's a it's a great point, and it leads to um, I don't think I'd mentioned this before, but I'm going to be quoted in the New York Times uh, apparently fairly soon. Uh, a young woman had contacted me last year who was doing her uh, doctoral work at King's College and doing a series of articles for the London Guardian about conspiracy, about Trump and Brexit. And I, th I think it's primarily about the negative impact of conspiracies. And But the one thing that I, that I liked is that, that she my, my latest book, uh, it's called Tinfoil Hot Not Included, is about the concept of conspiracy and the distinction between a real world conspiracy like the JFK conspiracy and a not real world conspiracy that JFK Jr. is still alive and or that lizards are running around or whatever. And and, and she's cognizant of that too. And um, I think that's what that article is going to be about, is about that separation. Because you're right. Uh, these days they have it's not just that conspiracy theorists are uh, you know marginalized, but that conspiracy theorists are now dangerous, possibly terrorists. Like, you know, and they're trying to paint everybody with this brush. Well, and the distinction between uh, trying to undermine the ability to have a government or a society that's functional versus trying to understand what's wrong so you don't repeat the same evils. Um, uh, those two things got muddled here. Uh, one is an excuse to resist all authority or resist all uh action the other is the you know desire to clean up our act and not do it again yeah. and that was with the kennedy case the the uh, coming out of stuff about other assassinations and so forth we learned a lot as a byproduct about assassinations and about the real story of the vietnam war and our role in, in the killing of ZM or at least all of that stuff. Uh, and I think that for all of us, that was what we were seeking, looking at if you understand what happened, you're, it, it's easier to prevent it reoccurring. Well, especially, especially you got like government like with Northwood speculating on downing an aircraft. And if there's if there's a possibility there's a sports team traveling, I'm like, damn it, I'm not getting on an airplane. But I put a lot more weight into Hale Boggs' death and a lot of other people like Dag Hammarskjöld that the UN decided to look into because it was a little bit suspicious about how his plane crashed. But, you know, I, I the free speech, I, I like the, the importance of this is to be able to talk about it. But when people say like you're, you know, the government, whatever this you're not being a patriot, you're being criticizing the government. I'm like, well, you're supposed to criticize the government. I mean, the fact that conspiracies are existing is because the fact that they're are trying to justify lying to you under this idea of defense or anything of this sort. And we know from history now that that is bullshit. I mean, it is you look at it. There's a lot of things that are big examples of this is clear like what was the purpose in this and it's their thought process and that's what happens when powers are unchecked for so long and it's like i'm a patriot of america and the government and everything but i also want them to define their terms because you can't do this broad brush labeling on every single thing and we know what happened with the communists threat i mean how ramped up that got i mean that's only going to create even more conflicts in today's society when they have these ideas of secrecy it's like I get secrets, sure, but can we define that? That would be great. 
Well, again, back to remember the Pentagon Papers and the importance of exposing a lot of things so that finally people did get a clearer picture of all of what was going on. And it wasn't as simple as the good guys versus the bad guys. And I know Joe's, Joe's got to go. Um, Joe, you want to promote your links if there's anything else you want to ask. And then I'm probably going to talk to Gary just for a couple more minutes. Okay. Uh, yeah. No, it's uh, Joe Green, JFK is my stuff. Uh, it's a real pleasure talking today. Uh, Gary's great. And Robbie always very nice. So, Thanks, man. Take care, everybody. Great Sweet to thing. see you face to face, as they say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Take care. All right, Gary, I got a couple questions for you. Um, one, would you do it again? Would you do it all over again? All the research, all the work you put in, everything like that? Oh, yeah. I, I grew as a person. I learned a great deal. It was an invaluable experience. And I can't separate the mental part and the learning and the growing up and the uh, from the personal friendships and relationships. I have some many treasured memories of discovering things, sharing them with others, uh, talking with other people who had a serious concern about the country and what the hell had happened. Um, do you think you have a healthy mistrust of the government or do you, any healthy mistrust of just the official story on things? I look at things a little bit more differently and I did before about like just the official story of things, but this one really opened up my eyes to a whole lot of history that exposed a lot. Oh, absolutely. And I would tell you, I had uh, some friends uh, who used to uh, sponsor little talks in their home to try to get people to reexamine the Vietnam War and other things. I turned out to be their most effective speaker because the JFK assassination, you had issues of the press's failure, governmental failures of a variety of types. And that was more convincing and in a way more straightforward than a lot of issues around the Vietnam War and Southeast Asia and stuff. So they had me back to do it many times because people, they found people developed a healthy distrust enough so they didn't buy the official version without at least getting clarification, if not explanation. We talked about this when we talked with the other Gary, but even the Vietnam napalm girl, who it was her photo, the photo was cropped, the original one compared to what the, they released to the uh, public. I mean, I get the credibility aspect of how it might look to the audience, but also it's kind of like, do you not expect people to be able to trust their own government? I mean, Vietnam War is one of the biggest contentious things. I mean, spout, sp sparked a lot about in the counterculture movement. A lot of people were anti-Vietnam War. Um, but it also sparked up the agencies to start creating fake programs and other things to try and tear down that uh, what they would call domestic terrorism, which is another big issue. Well, and, and sadly, as we see in the JFK assassination, but in other things, the creation of the very evil you're warning people about, and uh, whether you talk about MK Ultra, any of the other things going on, uh, the Black Panthers, you had people going out and killing people, blaming on the Black Panthers. You create all kinds of enemies. Uh, and of course, as we know, uh, during much of our lifetime, the American Communist Party was only able to stay afloat because FBI agents paid their dues. <laughs> They're sometimes the only people that were sending in their contributions. Probably that should have been a tip-off that if you're sending money, you're probably FBI. But Again, it 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 starts with some notion that 
you're good, and therefore anything you do is well-intended. And you can get so far afield from that that you're doing the very evil that you're warning people about. Now, and don't see it and, and then hide that fact. We've mentioned this a couple of times, and you've talked about some of your work on this, but you do believe that some of those deaths are suspicious that some people were killed off. Like I put a lot of weight in William Colby um, for the whole Watergate fiasco and the church committee stuff, but there's names in the assassination. I don't believe it's every single one. I think there's a speculated 160 or something like that, but I look at some maybe 20, 30. I would put um, – I'm going to blank on the guy who – who's the guy who saw the Rambler? Oh, um, I should know this. Uh, uh, Craig. Uh, yeah, uh, Roger Craig. Roger Craig. Officer Roger Craig. Yeah. His death is suspicious to me. When I talked to Steve Cameron, talked about it was apparently a shot from his own rifle that was aimed like this, so you had to hold it up like that, and it managed to go through all of his major organs, and he bled out on his floor. But there was a revolver on his dresser he could have just used. So. You know, there's weird things like that in autopsies that weren't performed to get a diagnosis of like a heart attack or something like that. I don't know if that's common procedure, but there's just some stuff where I'm like, why didn't you do an autopsy? Why did it have to be so case shut? Well, the biggest thing is I do believe that there are deaths that we don't know about simply because, you know, and the fact is somebody that's central to the case, it gets killed. Is is someone gets killed. So you don't know about them. But I do think that the legacy of fear around this is the bottom line and there's a tremendous number of people who are silenced by fear and uh the second thing i guess is uh there are uh well-documented threats and campaigns of threats there aren't things that people just dreamed up they're direct threats all of that stuff i think is relevant how many people were actually killed or assassinated that we know of I don't know. I've got some, again, that I think are suspicious, but... Dorothy uh, Kilgallen? The, again, uh, Dorothy Kilgallen is one of those ones where uh, I don't know. I, I Yes, they're, uh, unfortunately, that type of uh, death is not uncommon where um, you have the uh, uh, multiplier effect of the two drugs. Uh, uh, it's hard to say. I... I there's a bunch that I'm I'm up on the fence on. I I don't believe it's clear cut that there's I have a ton that are in the suspicious category, but not where I I'd say oh well that clearly is even the even the David Furry and other things. I mean, uh, I don't I don't take the position that we know of a bunch of people that were killed. I think. Uh, Rose Sharami, however, uh, if it's got to be somebody that knows something or is key that we don't know, that the death has to cover something up. It can't be about what we already know, I, I don't think. It's not a lot of payoff in that. With Dorothy Kilgallen, um, James Angleton was apparently the person that took her journal from – but then I also know that – I think it's James Angleton that also – with Mary Meyer and broke into her art studio and took her diary as well too. So I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but it, that's very suspicious where that guy's name popped up in two missing well, they, as they, pieces. Yeah. The, 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 as they call him the ghost, 
a very key player uh, and certainly one of those people that has to be suspect if you're asking which powerful people were in any kind of position to bring this thing about. Certainly, Angleton's got to be on the list. And I think, however, it's also possible that he's simply somebody that's endlessly covering up sleaze and uh, intelligence operations. And as we know, he was operated as a bit of a renegade, but one with a lot of power and influence. I do think the Mary's Mosaic book and the work that's been done on on Mary and Dorothy Kilgallen certainly impresses me as something significant, but I don't, you know, I haven't reached a conclusion as to exactly what, but Angleton would be one of the people on my list if you're saying who has clout, who has the know-how, who might have had the motive, he'd be on that list. I point to those, at least pointing out those as like lines of like, this is where we can tell that there's like, obviously we don't have to roll our eyes at conspiracy. Like that's very weird that you know, those situations happen where two diaries or two important things were taken by the same person um, after their deaths. Well, exactly. And and he's certainly a Johnny on the spot in terms of trying to pull stuff together, suck things up. And again, it was somebody that, that, unfortunately, was never really put on the spot by the um, the congressional committee. I mean, that's that's an example of one of the people I would like to have seen. Are you surprised really? with the number of people that made statements saying they did it? Like Traficante did, I think, at the time, and then James Files is over there still talking about doing the shot. And then I think even Sam Giancana at one point also said it as well, too. Yeah, and or uh, the classic thing, their lawyer or one of their kids or a relative makes a statement. Uh, first of all, it's quite possible that they were involved in some fashion. Uh, the mob CIA military connections fairly well established for certain projects. And the possibility that some element of this, even the killing of Oswald uh, related to some mob function is quite possible. I don't think those are the people that ran the show, but did they provide any kind of expertise or muscle? Um, again, I go back to Nancy Purr and Rich talking about the Jack Ruby as the bag man for a joint CIA crime operation, pulling refugees out of Cuba and sending guns in. Uh, here we have somebody at directly observe that interchange occurring, um, that kind of stuff was going on. So is one of these people connected, or do they believe they are and aren't? Uh, I do believe the key to this case was that leads went in all kinds of directions, and all kinds of people could be fingered or pulled in. Everybody was covering their connections. Oswald had more connections. <laughs> uh, more more groups that have to worry about getting rid of files or any kind of a sign of connection. Some of them may have been involved, and some of them may simply have been wanting to sever any tie to Oswald. Oswald is a kind of like the tar baby in Brer Rabbit. I mean, you just don't want to touch the tar baby. Well, Mr. Schoner, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk with Joe um, and appreciate the extra couple of minutes here at the end as well, too. But is there a place where people can find any of your links if there's anything you'd like to promote? 
uh, I got nothing to promote. <laughs> You'll find a whole bunch of stuff in the Weisberg archives. And I think you can, if you go, if you do Gary Schoner JFK, you can uh, find um, uh, Tom Bethel's notes about my visit with Garrison. <laughs> But uh, yeah, and I don't. I don't think the things. I don't know. I believe in some of these sites. My my piece, uh, a legacy of fear. I believe is available somewhere in the internet, and I uh, in one of the JFK sites. And I also believe that um, Vince, Tom Caton, my article series of articles, the Watchman waketh but in vain, may be there somewhere. That would be. Those would be the two things from long, long ago. Well, I'll link those in the description. We got to start you with Twitter at some point. I know you're not about it, but it'd be a great way for people to be able to follow you and check out some things, the interesting things you might be able to post. Um, but I'll, I appreciate the time. I'm going to link your links in the description. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.